on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Welcome to season two of the Legal Economic Nexus podcast with your co-hosts Eric Scorsoni and Sarah Klammer from Michigan State University. Sarah, how are you today? I'm great, Eric. How about you? Very good. It's good to be back in the fall, getting things going again here on campus. Just a kind of few highlights for folks from the uh, heterodox economic news, some calls for papers from the Forum for Social Economics, uh, the New School Economic Review, and the Japanese Society for the History of Economic Thought. There's also some call for participants, so I'd ask folks to check that out, and then some job postings from the uh, European Climate Foundation, the Open University, and a number of other places in in Europe. Please check out Heterox News when you get a chance to keep up with things. So we're starting season two and excited to kick it off. To start, a quote from our, uh, one of our mentors, Warren Samuels, to kind of kick us off from his University of Miami Law Review article from 1973. The very first sentence, law is an instrument for the attainment of economic objectives, and the economy is an object of legal control. And I think that pretty well summarizes kind of the thinking we have and probably what this podcast is about in our our new book as well. So we're kicking off season two with a great guest. We have Malcolm Rutherford, who is the Emeritus Professor of Economics from the Department of Economics, University of Victoria in British Columbia, Canada. Malcolm, welcome. Hello, it's great to be here. Thanks for joining us. So we're gonna start talking about some of your books and some of your recent, more recent work you've done. In one of your most important books, The Institutionalist Movement in American Economics, one of my favorites, you spend some time on Wesley Mitchell and Robert Hoxie. You write that Mitchell came to the view that Veblen's work was too speculative. And about Hoxie, you wrote that he turned away from the Veblenian model. He was clearly more empirical and pragmatic than Veblen. And my curiosity is, is this a common theme or point of contention about sort of the Veblenian approach and the more pragmatic approach that we see even today in institutional economics? Well, one of the reactions I got to this part of my book when I detail the kinds of criticisms that other institutionalists made of Veblen, was that people were not aware that these criticisms had been made, that they didn't realize that other institutionalists had made critical remarks about Veblen. So I think it's important to understand where these remarks come from and and how that uh, shaped institutionalism. I don't think of institutionalism as being Veblenism. There are important parts of Veblen's work that come through into institutionalism, particularly his critique of business, of course, and his critique of neoclassical economics is taken over almost wholesale. But there are aspects of Veblen's work that are not taken over. And one of the 
main aspects that doesn't appear later on is the aspect that Jeff Hodgson has emphasized so much, which is Veblen's evolutionary theory. And it's interesting to think about why that exactly is the case. Veblen's institutional or his theory of institutional change is a very particular one. It is not based on rational decision making. It's not that people choose a different institutional setting or they're in an institutional setting and they scratch their heads and think, we can do better, let's change the law. It's a behaviorist theory, and it's based on the idea that people get conditioned into thinking in certain ways by their environment. And the important environment is the institutional environment and the technological environment, and particularly the technological environment. So institutions grow out of the ways of living and thinking and doing that the technology imposes on people. And Veblen talks a lot about the discipline of life. So he thinks of people as being disciplined by this context. So his idea was that the technology of modern capitalism, large-scale mechanized industry, was leading to ways of thinking that were inconsistent with the institutional framework of pecuniary gain, natural rights, and so on that this uh, technological system would lead people to think in terms of causal relations only, what he called efficient cause rather than sufficient reason. <laughs> mm. And this would lead certain groups that were con particularly conditioned by technology to think in different ways, to think in much more socialistic ways, in fact. And at various times, he picked on different groups as being potential leaders in this movement. He thought about the industrial workers of the world as a possible group at one point. He thought about trade union members as being a group for a long period of time. Then he thought about the engineers as being the, the class that might lead this revolutionary change. But they'd lead this change because they began to think in different ways. So, for example, he even criticizes Marx's theory of class revolution as being based on self-interest. He argues it's not interests that lead to change. It's conditioning of the way people think. So that doesn't give you much scope for active reformism. Right? You're not going to say, well, under the current circumstances, I'm going to try and change the law in this particular direction. Because if the time isn't right, if people aren't thinking in ways that are at odds with the existing system, there's, there's no point. <laughs> it's not mm -hmm. going to happen. It's only going to happen when people have been conditioned to think in different ways. Mm -hmm. So Veblen is an outlier. He's not a progressive in the sense that Ely or Adams or the institutionalists were progressives. These were people who were actively trying to change the law, change institutions, create new institutions. Veblen was not active in that sense. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, thanks. Yep. Yeah. Do you think when Hamilton wrote his piece, I think it was 1918, about institutional economics, was he already of the mindset that Veblen you know, was not going to be... I mean, there was interesting stuff in Veblen, but already moving in a different direction? 
Yes. I mean, uh, Hamilton was connected back to the progressive group through his teachers, who were Henry Carter Adams and Charles Horton Cooley. So he was very much trained in the progressive tradition. He got to know Veblen very well, actually, mainly because when he was at Amherst teaching, his colleague Walter Stewart was a good friend of Veblen. Stewart had been a student of Veblen's at Missouri. So Veblen used to come and visit them in Amherst, and they got to know each other very well. And there certainly are chunks of Veblen that you can see in Hamilton, there's no question. He uses this idea of institutions being out of touch with the technology quite extensively. Hamilton's response to that is to try to change the law. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, so he's active in that sense. The same with Commons. Most of the other institutionalists, they're very involved in government. They're involved in trying to create legal changes. They're creating new associations, such as the American Association for Labor Legislation. They're generating new institutions, new research institutions like the National Bureau or Brookings, all in this attempt to promote this progressive agenda. Veblen didn't do that stuff. Mm. One thing I was interested, you know, Hamilton had this idea about the coal industry, for example, which it sounds like was rejected by many, perhaps. But and then I think we also talked about the his ideas about medical care, which are, quite frankly, still relevant today, probably at least in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's a big part of the institutional tradition is coming up with these kind of reforms. And can you maybe say a little bit about Hamilton's ideas, perhaps? Hamilton's really interesting. He did have quite a few very creative ideas about policy. One of his main concerns right from the very beginning was to get representation of the consumer interest. He was always concerned that traditional regulation or traditional agencies that regulated industries had labor representation and owner representation and maybe an academic. <laughs> <laughs> as chair, right? but there was no explicit consumer representation. And Hamilton was really big on this notion that the consumer should be represented. Mm -hmm. So when it came to the coal industry, his suggestion was almost to get rid of representation by owners. He wanted to see the owners reduced to bondholders, essentially. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have a say the say in the operation of the industry would be from workers and consumers. Mm -hmm. So you need consumer representation of some sort in order to do that. And in the New Deal, he was involved in exactly this development of consumer representation in the Consumers Advisory Board of the NRA. So he was always pushing this idea that you have to have consumer representation. Otherwise, you just get this tendency for regulatory agencies to be captured by the industry that they're supposed to regulate. But if you have consumer representation, that's less likely to happen. In the case of medical care, his suggestions are really interesting. He wanted to see medical care done as group practice, and he wanted the organization to be similar to a university. That is, the group practice is a nonprofit organization. The doctors and staff are salaried. 
they can get promoted on the basis of their performance. The board of governors consists of lay people, again, people who will be consumers of medical services. So again, it's not a medical system run by the American Medical Association. It's a medical or the insurance companies. It's a medical system that has consumers right there in the governing hierarchy of the, of the system. He also was in favor of single-payer universal medical insurance, which of course didn't go down well with the uh, American Medical Association at the time. But there was a lot of concern about medical insurance in the 30s, and there were several attempts to generate a different kind of system. There was Hamilton's group, this committee to study medical care that he was a part of. And there was also a, a group in the American Association of Labor Legislation, which were also looking at medical insurance issues. So it was a very live issue at the time in the 30s. Mm. Other okay. people were very creative. I mean, John Commons was very creative in some of his, uh, the ways he tried to set up regulatory agencies and, and the way in which he, he wanted them to work. So in both Hamilton and Commons's work, you find this idea that administration is also experimental decision-making. So the administrative agency should also be trying to try out new ideas and, and see how they work and adjust over time. So the administrative agency actually becomes an agency for investigation and experiment as well as just administration. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. Touching on antitrust as another policy realm, both Hamilton and I think you also talk about Clark in this context, the idea that antitrust policy always is relative to some benchmark of perfect competition, which I think is still today a live issue with the social media companies. I'm just curious how they thought about this. And I think you had mentioned Clark's workable competition idea, for example. Yes, I think uh, Hamilton and Clark both thought the perfect competition model is not a useful benchmark. It's not something that you can aim towards through antitrust policy. Clark was actually very reticent in his discussion of workable competition. He makes a point that we would now call the problem of second best, that getting closer to perfect competition, if you're just trying to remove barriers and to get closer to perfect competition, getting a bit closer to perfect competition does not necessarily lead to a better result. The second best solution, if you can't reach the first best solution, the second best solution may not be something that is closer mm. to your ideal than further away. Mm -hmm. So you can't assume that getting closer is better. Mm. And that's the problem of second best. What is, if you can't reach the perfect solution, what is the second best solution? And that's what Clark's notion of workable competition was trying to define. What is a workable, achievable, acceptable market. What does that look like? <laughs> if you can't have a perfectly competitive model, what does a good market consist of? Do you think that's similar to Common's reasonable value idea in some sense? Oh, yes. Yes, I, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Hamilton, of course, again, wanted antitrust to move in an administrative direction. So he wanted to see it again become 
based on the consent decrees, not on legal cases. The antitrust agency actually becoming more investigative, case-by-case approach, trying things out, being more experimental again. So that idea of administration as experiment is terribly important in the institutional framework. Commons actually called this the fourth branch of government, is is how he described it. Mm -hmm. Right. Interesting, yeah. Another person you write about quite a bit, and I think we touched on this a little in our very first episode with Anne Mayhew, but Copeland and she mostly focused on his flow of funds, but I think he seems very ignored. And I'm kind of curious what you think maybe institutionals today should be learning from Copeland uh, that maybe we don't hear about too often. Well, I'm glad you talked to Anne. Anne started getting interested in flow of funds as a result of my paper on Copeland. Okay. (laughs) I talked about flow of funds and she picked that up and she's run with it. And she's done some really quite interesting work on flow of funds. Flow of funds really isn't discussed much in the institutionalist literature. I don't think it's, I had not come across it at all in my reading of the institutionalist literature until I got into Copeland's work. And that's true of a lot of what Copeland did, because a lot of his work was about statistics and it was about government statistics. So he did a lot of it in government. Mm -hmm. It didn't result in a lot of sort of journal articles in the JPE or the AER and things like that, although he did publish in those journals. But he did really did a lot of interesting work, Copeland. And his career, I found it interesting because it spanned the whole gamut of institutionalist endeavor. You know, he was involved in all sorts of things. And he was at Amherst and he was at Chicago and he studied with Hamilton. He studied with Clark. He visited Brookings and He's got all of these connections. He was close friends with Ayers. They have an immense correspondence, actually, which uh, is really interesting. I didn't appreciate Ayers until I read his uh, correspondence. He's actually a very witty man, and mm. his correspondence is a barrel of laughs. But uh, you'd never know that from reading his books. <laughs> interesting, yeah. Copeland, I think. Although his work was really important in terms of government statistics, he did a tremendous amount to develop government statistical work during the New Deal. I mean, it was immense what he did. But that doesn't get you well known outside of this group of government economists. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like a figure that's important that people have maybe need to rediscover. And I think thank you for bringing it to our attention. I'm fascinated by the relationship between Keynes and the institutionalists. And I've always felt when you, especially if you read maybe Commons or others, you you actually would see some initial Keynesian almost ideas about public expenditures, for example. I'm just curious how you see, how did Keynes and the Keynesian relation evolve? And I mean, even today, it seems they're not quite, I mean, they seem affiliated, but maybe not the same. And I'm just curious how you see that back in the day when it first came about? There's a lot of interesting connections and Commons and Keynes had a surprising amount to do with each other, actually. There's a whole bit in Commons about the, the possible future of the capitalist system, which Keynes actually took over quite substantially. And it appears in some of Keynes's 
addresses and talks. And he was very familiar with Commons's work. Keynes, among the Cambridge economists, Keynes was really the only one who knew anything about American economics. And he became very familiar with many of the institutionalist types in the New Deal administration. He mm. got, got to know Lubin and Ezekiel and Tugwell and all of these people and Clark. And they were actually pursuing programs that in certain respects were not that dissimilar. The institutionalist program was based on a business cycle notion, which Keynes is, was not. I mean, Keynes is, is an equilibrium theory. The traditional institutionalist way of thinking about unemployment issues was in terms of a business cycle. But nevertheless, in terms of thinking about depression and unemployment, the answers that the institutionalists were giving were things like expenditure programs and easier monetary policy and public works of various types. And that's very clear in J.M. Clark, for example, and Tugwell as well. Tugwell actually was heavily influenced by John Hobson and his underconsumptionist ideas. So there's a lot of underconsumptionism in the institutionalist literature. So when Keynes comes along, Keynes drops this, this little macro model into the discussion. And the institutionalists say, yes, well, okay, but <laughs> what about this and what about that? Well, particularly, what about the long-term effect on prices of continued deficit spending? That was a big concern. There was also concern that this model was too simplistic, that it would be uh, taken hold of and turned into a dogma. And J.M. Clark in particular was very concerned that Keynesianism would simply become very dogmatic because it was so easy to wrap up in a little bundle and say, you know, this is the truth. Mm -hmm. um, right. There were lots of criticisms coming from the National Bureau as well, because the National Bureau had done mountains of empirical work on a lot of the variables that Keynes was talking about. So they knew already, for example, the short-run consumption function was not stable. Mm. They'd done all sorts of work on consumption. They knew that long-term consumption functions were different from short-term consumption functions. Mm. So work I think that either Kuznets uh, had done on professional practice, earnings of doctors and, and lawyers and so on, had already indicated to people at the NBER that long-term consumption functions were different than short-term ones, that people responded to windfall changes differently to permanent changes in their income. Right. And that, of course, became part of what Friedman developed later on. Right. But Friedman's attention to that problem was brought to him by people who were working on the income project for the National Bureau. Mm -hmm. So they said to him, we're making these empirical observations about consumption, but we don't have a good theory. And Friedman went off and developed the permanent income hypothesis. There was other people, actually three female economists, including his future wife, Rose, who were doing that empirical work on consumption. Yeah, that history is super interesting. Switching gears just a little bit, I'm always interested in this idea of institutional individualism, which you wrote about in the 90s in your book, Institutions and Economics. 
Could you talk a little bit about that, whether you think the behavioral revolution has clarified some of the tension there at all? I think they continue the tension. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'll explain that a bit. Um, The term institutional individualism was actually coined by Louis Agassiz, I think. Popper had tended to just use the term methodological individualism. But methodological individualism is often utilized and defined in a way that almost excludes social level variables. That everything at the social level is seen as being the result of individual behavior. So the line of causation goes from individuals to social, and that's it. Institutions are the outcome of individual behavior. Individuals are the only actors. Institutions don't act, right? But if you read Popper, there is the reverse causation too. Popper never denies institutions affect individual behavior or that there's a reverse line of causation from institutions to individuals. So Agassiz coined the term institutional individualism to make that distinct from the more extreme versions of methodological individualism, where you get people claiming that only individuals exist, that society doesn't exist, or it's just some sort of epiphenomena, doesn't have a real existence, or these sorts of things. Uh, So the sort of extreme libertarian point of view that you find. So when I think about institutional economics, both old and new, the old institutional economics initially uh, was accused of being holist and in fact, they even used the term holism themselves, Alan Grushy did, although in a different sense. And holism is usually thought of as implying that social wholes can act themselves. And I thought that was wrong. I don't think that's what anybody was claiming. Mm. But they certainly wanted to claim that social institutions and norms could affect the way people behave. So institutional individualism is that program where you allow for both lines of causation. Thank you. Yeah. You also argued, though, in that same book that both old and new institutionalists have been too dogmatic in their approach to efficiency and reform. So do you still think that? Has that changed some? A little bit of change, I think. If you look at the new institutional economics, and, and particularly if you look at the sequence of works produced by Douglas North, for example, the significant change occurs over time in North's arguments. So he starts off really trying to do the pure methodological individualistic thing of explaining institutions purely in terms of individual behavior, of individual decision making. But in fact, he can't do it. He has to introduce ideology (laughs) in order to get his explanations to work. And gradually, over time, North has introduced more and more of these sort of social level variables into his explanations. The worldview that people have, the ideologies that people have, have become increasingly important in, in his explanations of institutional change. And that makes him much closer to the old institutionalists. I was on a, in a conference session with Doug North. He's a delightful man, but he doesn't like to admit that he's read all of the old institutionalists and knows them very well. <laughs> There's still a big reluctance on the part of each group to really communicate 
they still tend to talk to themselves and not to each other. I got actually very frustrated with AFI at certain points. I mean, I've been president of AFI and vice president and all sorts of things on AFI. And sometimes I want to pull my hair out because they really don't want to talk to people who, in their view, are not true institutionalists. So if you get somebody to come and talk to them who's done buckets of work in evolutionary theory, you can't get them to listen. <laughs> and on the other side, you know, especially on the more libertarian end of the, the new institutionalist group, this Hayek worship, which is almost impossible to penetrate, mm -hmm. can't see that there's any limitations to this notion of spontaneous order. It's very, very difficult, actually. My first book was a plea for communication, and it hasn't really worked, I have to mm. admit. Mm. I wish it had. <laughs> because when you actually get some of the really good people on both sides talking to each other, it's, it's good. I've had wonderful conversations with Jack Roman and, and people in the new institutionalist side, if you can actually get them talking about an issue. Mm. You did mention um, maybe a difference between North America and Europe in that context. You yeah. seem to think maybe Europe is more open to the dialogue, perhaps. Is that a yeah, perhaps? Well, I think the institutionalist groups around Jeff Hodgson and in Europe have, are more open. So they, they will read Hayek and they will read as well as Veblen, for example. I've come across a lot of institutionalist types who seem to be surprised that I've read Hayek or think there's anything to be said about him. I don't agree with <laughs> a lot of what said, but he's a bright man. Yeah. Um, there's stuff in there that's significant. Sure. You know, you find that combination of in the European literature where people are referring to a much wider range of literature in developing their ideas than you tend to find over here. Mm. I've certainly been impressed with the European associations because uh, they seem to have more non-economists in them as well, which I found very beneficial, especially for comments on presentations, papers. Well, of course, in some of the European traditions, particularly in Germany, there's always been a much closer association between economics and sociology yeah. Yeah. and economics and law. Than... There were a bunch of lawyers in uh, one of the recent meetings we went to. It was very refreshing. Yeah. Well, it was a German tradition that, to some extent, people tried to bring that into the U.S. and in the universities in the early part of the century. And the way certain faculties were set up were set up on the German line with uh, close links between economics, sociology, and law. But that gradually separated out over time, unfortunately. Right. I wanted to turn to a new paper you circulated recently, Institutional Economics and John Dewey's Instrumentalism, and talk a little bit about that. I guess the first question I have related to that is the tension between Dewey's pragmatic instrumental approach and the emphasis on social and economic planning. Is that a tension? Is there a resolution to that kind of tension? And maybe what your thoughts are on that? You know, that tension was pointed up, particularly by Wade Hands and some of his recent work on Dewey and pragmatism. And it's quite an interesting one. It is a bit of a puzzle. When you read Dewey on scientific method, which I really like, I mean, it's, I find it quite 
an appealing approach that he lays out. He's not terribly prescriptive, right? He's what Wade calls, uh, I mean, he gives people a lot of latitude in the particular investigational methods that they may want to use. He's not laying down the rule that you have to do it this A, B, C, D, this way. Or, and his view of science is extremely fallibilistic. I mean, science can make mistakes and you can get things wrong and it can take a long time to correct those errors. He does view science as self-corrective, but like Charles Peirce, that's a fairly long-run idea that science will be self-corrective. Errors will be discovered eventually and one hopes fixed. And then you turn to some of his stuff on social control, and it varies quite a bit in Dewey, but there are certainly sections of Dewey's work where he's really, really anti-market. He's really down on markets, on capitalism, on business, and he's really talking about planning in a very strong way. That things should be planned. And this does seem to be slightly at odds, because to plan in that way requires huge amounts of knowledge and information. And if you're going to plan in that detailed way successfully, you'd have to have a tremendous amount of reliable scientific knowledge to base those plans on. And yet his view of science is, is well, yeah, policy is experimental. Policy is the equivalent of a scientific experiment. You try a policy out, you look at the results, you adjust your policy. Maybe you have to change your presumptions. Maybe you have to change your, the goals you're trying to pursue, depending on the results of trying to pursue them. Right? So it's all of this business about conducting social policy as in this experimental sense. And then he'll turn around and say, well, for this experiment to really mean stuff, you have to control every other variable. So the only experiments that, that are going to be meaningful are ones that are take place within a society that is largely planned so that all these other things don't change. Mm -hmm. I mean, this makes no sense to me. <laughs> but uh, you, know, you can't have both this highly experimental view of your scientific endeavor, including social policy, and then turn around and say, you have to plan everything. <laughs> yeah, I thought so too. It seemed like yeah. a tension. Yeah. I know you expressed in maybe the discussion around when you distributed the paper, whether this experimental approach, if we stick to that piece of it, is challenging, especially in the world of, it seems like to me, we're in a world where ideology is becoming more and more dominant in our politics, in our policies. So, I mean, it seems like that would be an obvious tension then because people don't want to experiment. They just want to impose. I mean, it sounds like you're frustrated by that potentially as well. I am very, actually. I'm quite disturbed by many of the things I see going on in terms of policy. I mean, you've got an American Republican Party that believes in tax cuts and deregulation despite all of the evidence <laughs> that tax cuts don't work and don't pay for themselves. and that deregulation results in huge amounts of environmental damage and other issues. And in Britain, you've got this Brexit that was a con job from the start, if you ask me. And yet nobody is really willing to, no politician 
anyway, is willing to get up and say this was a disaster. This was a major act of self-harm. To me, it's obvious. That, and it was obvious from the beginning. You don't do away with your close relations to your biggest trading partner without it having some sort of <laughs> adverse impact. You know, it's just mind-boggling the stuff that they tried to put over on people. And they apparently succeeded. I think it's a disaster, absolute disaster. And I don't know how you get back to thinking about policy critically, trying to get a, a more fact-based or a scientific-based approach to policy. Experts are very out of fashion right now. You can see all of these attacks on public health experts, and that's just one aspect, because this attack on experts has been going on for a while. So experts are undemocratic and not to be trusted. And I think that's a problem. It's not that experts are always right, they're not. And they can get things badly wrong too. But unless you're willing to critically discuss policy and critically appraise policy, then uh, it's hopeless. Well, great, well, this has been very interesting. Thank you, Malcolm, for joining us. Very enlightening. Well, thank sure, you. I'll, sure, I'll get a few comments back from this. <laughs> <laughs>